These songs are deep. I need a little bit of time to get my voice back here. I couldn't sing that that last song. Deep theological truth in song is amazing. It prepares our hearts. It drives us to the cross. And I am just so thankful for this day that we can come together, celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, I want to look at Romans chapter 3 uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can, you can turn there now. I am going to start in chapter 1, but Romans 3 is a chapter that will devastate us as we come face to face with our sin and our utter inability to stand before this God who is so holy. Devastate us, but also enrapture us as we encounter undeserved grace and the glory of Christ's work on the cross. Today, as we gather as the body of Christ, this is exactly what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the cross, and this morning, I pray that we would do nothing else but put our gaze on Christ to remember, to set our minds on truth so that our hearts are directed to our great salvation, to our great Savior, to our great King. In essence, this morning, as we look at Romans 3, we're going to walk through the gospel, not because we haven't heard it before, but because we need to hear it again. We never move on from the gospel. We are not ashamed of this message for those who are without Christ, but also for us because the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word or preaching of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, present tense, it is the power of God. So as we rehearse the gospel, we need the Holy Spirit to do his work here this morning. His transformative work is the power of God, the power of the word, the power of the gospel. As we remember our frail, bankrupt state in sin, as we gaze, as we've already been doing on the beauty of Christ, as we rest in the power and provision of the gospel, as we act in reliance upon him, to surrender and live under his good reign. We all need this. If we want to love more, if we want to please God more, if we want to walk in a worthy manner, to be sustained under this weight of burden that we live in, if we want to parent to the glory of God, if we want to disciple others, we need to understand deeply who we are in Christ who he is and what he's done as seen in the gospel. So let's pray. Father, before we look at this great chapter of Romans 3, we want to gaze at you. We want to gaze on you. We want to be reminded of the beauty of the gospel that is in the person of Christ. Strengthen our souls this morning. Sustain us through truth. 
amaze us once again that we might live a worship-filled life of obedience rooted in and overflowing from our faith-based union in you. Do your work in us so that you can do your work through us. And as we look at this chapter, which is so familiar to so many of us, Lord, just use this reminder as we come to this table to set our hearts in the place of worship and wonder and awe in our great salvation. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Paul begins, um, really, his discussion as we move into chapter 3 from very first chapter of Romans. So I'm going to start in Romans chapter 1. Just read, again, the thesis of this book, which most people believe everything flows out of Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness comes by faith for both Jews and Gentiles. The object of that faith is Christ's completed work on the cross. And Paul's argument is going to lead to that truth that the righteousness, that the justification that we need can only come from outside of ourselves, imputed to us, in fact, Christ's righteousness. But before Paul can expound more on verses 16 and 17 about justification by faith, which he will do in the latter part of chapter 3, and we'll get to a little bit of that, as well as chapter 4, he has to first demonstrate the condition of the unrighteousness of all people. So immediately after this thesis, Paul launches into a section that extends from verse 18 right into verse 20 of chapter 3. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time in Romans 3, 9 through 20. And he does this to demonstrate that far from being righteous before God, the whole world is corrupt to the core and condemned, deserving of God's wrath. All objects of God's wrath and condemnation. So in this very next verse, in verse 18, he goes on to say, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul begins with a charge that he will revisit in a text that we're going to look at that says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So if we were to follow the flow, the logical flow from Paul from this verse, we would see that he's going to then talk about condemnation against unrighteous Gentiles. He does that through the rest of chapter 1. He's going to then talk about the condemnation against unrighteous Jews or religious Jews in chapter 2, leading right up until verse 8 of chapter 3, where the religious think that they're better. Paul says, you're not. They have more knowledge. They have greater accountability. They have this impenetrable heart storing up, in fact, God's wrath. And he says of the Jewish believers, they dishonor God. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Shocking. 
God's condemnation against unrighteous Jews, but then it leads to condemnation against unrighteousness of mankind with no exceptions, and that's what we're going to look at here this morning. After that, he's going to move to talk about justification, sanctification, uh, the restoration of Israel, and also then living out God's righteousness in chapter 12 through chapter 15. So in Romans 3, if you're not there yet, but getting there, just some introductory comments. This is where Paul answers this obvious question from the Jews. We do have an advantage, right? That was their question. After hearing these words of condemnation, they're wondering, don't we have some invested part in this already? And Paul says, yes, having the oracles of God, but this advantage does not provide a favored position in respect to the wrath of God based on sin and inherent unrighteousness. God is right and just to also say that you are under his wrath. So moving from verse 9, which we're going to get to, Paul's argument for the problem of human sin and unrighteousness really reaches this climax here in the mid part of this chapter. He seals the indictment that he started with in the letter in verse one, or chapter 118 in this very powerful way in a barrage of Old Testament texts in Romans 9 through 20, which we won't have the time to draw back into the Old Testament text, but this is probably a passage that is the clearest to show the terrible nature and character of sin. The state of mankind is hopelessness if God doesn't step in and do something. So the argument that follows, Paul's argument, I didn't press that, there we go. Paul's argument in these verses 9 through 20 is to show the tragic blindness of religious of the religious who had the scriptures yet failed to really see the truth. It's to show that there are no exceptions. He does that through repetition. He says over and over, no one, no not one, all. No one escapes this condemnation. Nobody escapes the wrath of God. There's no exception. All guilty before God, and this would be shocking to a Jewish audience, which is a mixed audience. This church in Rome that Paul has not been to, but he wants to go, and he wants to share, declare, proclaim, preach the gospel among even them. It's also to show the depth and ugliness of sin, even among the very religious. Nice on the outside, but rotten on the inside. His point is also to show mankind's utter inability to be right with God. Paul shows the absolute need for God the, the manifestation, manifestation of grace to break onto the scene. And we're going to see that. Man's inability requires God's power. Left up to us, zero chance. Zero hope if it's left up to us. So, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, Paul says. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. When Paul says that we have already charged, he's pointing back to chapter 1, verse 18. The unrighteous are under the wrath of God. Paul brings this charge up again. He says we have already charged. We, the accusation has already been brought against you. Formal charges have been pressed that the world is innately sinful and under wrath. Both Jews 
and Gentiles are under sin. Not that they've just sinned or they are sinful, but fully under the influence and domination of sin. So Paul, adopting really terminology of a courtroom, he now walks them through a judicial procedure to determine guilt or innocence, to prove his point that God is righteous with his wrath against all people. If the evidence is sufficient and these charges can be proven, then the whole world stands guilty before God, deserving of the penalty set forth already in chapter 1, verse 18. So Paul's case against all mankind follows this procedure. The accusation, the charge, the indictment, the defense, and the verdict. So we've already looked at the accusation, the charge. It's really found in verse 18 of chapter 1, but then he repeats it in verse 9 of chapter 3. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Go back. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the next step after he places this charge in this judicial procedure is the indictment. Uh, Indictment is a formal written statement framing the case. Every indictment must have at least one count, one specific charge, and Paul here lists at least 14. Looking at these next verses, starting from verse 10, let me just read through this indictment, this list of indictments. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, verse 11. No one seeks for God, verse 11. All have turned aside, verse 12. Together they have become worthless, useless. The Greek word is talking about spoiled milk. No use. I know what you're thinking. We can use spoiled milk today, but worthless, useless. Verse 12 again, no one does good, not even one. Our good is a veneer of good. It's self-serving. Verse 13, it's getting uglier. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom or poison of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. They do not know the path of peace, verse 17. Verse 18 probably is a summary or it's another indictment. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is actually a quote from the Septuagint, Psalm 36.1, where David is looking at the wicked in this psalm, looking at the state of their depravity, and their state of depravity is actually telling David something, saying that in their heart, they cannot find a reason to fear God. They can live as they want to live. They can play out all of their desires because there's just no reason to fear God. So Paul's list of indictments really go from general, very broad, to very specific. They go from bad, they start out bad, but they go to worse. We don't have time to walk through and pick out every word, but it all leads us to ask internally, is there any hope for mankind? So there's a charge. There's an indictment. 
The next step in a judicial procedure is words from the defense. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed. Verse 19. Every mouth is closed, speechless. There is no rebuttal. The defense has no case. Apart from faith in Christ, this is where we all stand. We have no defense. We are speechless. And we have to be silent before this holy God with such a list of indictments against us. Paul's going to lead then to this next step in this procedure, and that is the verdict. The whole world is guilty. There are no exceptions He says in verse 19, again, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. This is the verdict. All the world is accountable. Guilty is the Greek word here. This is a state of a person who has been justly charged that they are legally now responsible for and worthy of blame. Uh, This word is interesting because it only shows up once in the New Testament. Paul specifically chose this word. Under judgment, one who lost his suit, legal, forensic, court of law term. You are now answerable to God for what you are being charged with. You are liable on account of sin. Paul's purpose here, exposing sin, is not just to show how wretched we are on the inside, not just to show uh, that our actions are sinful. Yes, we're rotten to the core, but there's something more. Going back to verse 18 of chapter 1, verse 9 of chapter 3, we are under sin, under God's wrath. In our polluted, rotten state, we are liable to God because our offense is against Him. We deserve punishment. We deserve judgment. Eternal separation from God. We stand guilty. We don't just rot away. Before a holy, perfect God, His standard, we are accountable to Him. So this charge, the verdict, the punishment is fitting. The whole world. So there's a charge, there's an indictment, there's a silent defense, there's a verdict, and then there's a case closed. The final overwhelming statement in the court of law. Verse 20, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No flesh will be justified in his sight. Case closed. Devastating. Speechless. Silent. When we come before this holy God, this is serious. This is eternal. And this is devastating. If it wasn't for God showing up on the scene. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, those who have the highest conception of grace and the gospel who have the highest level of gratitude for God's work of grace are always those who are most conscious 
of the state of sin. The greater we understand our sinfulness and inability to come to God, the greater we appreciate the love, the grace, the mercy, the patience of God, and the power of the gospel to save us and transform us. God breaks in on the scene in verse 20, 21, and that's what we're going to read here right now. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His, uh, by gra- by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as, his, as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There are certain conjunctions, uh, the word but, in Scripture that change everything, and this is one of them. We all stand guilty. I lost that slide, I think. Yeah. Thank you. We all stand guilty before a holy God, a just God, a righteous God. We have no ability to come to Him, no ability within ourselves to get right with Him except for a work of grace through Jesus Christ, through the gospel. The just is also the justifier. We're justified, declared righteous by His grace as a gift, dead in our sins, apart from God's rich mercy, apart from His manifestation of grace, we have zero hope of being right before God. There's nothing we can do because we have no ability to please God and to live up to His standard. So how does God do that? It says here, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And isn't that why we gather around this table here this morning? God put forth as a propitiation by His blood, Christ. Christ is our propitiation. We receive Him by faith. Propitiation means averting the wrath of God by, offering of a, by the offering of a gift. On the, cro- on the cross, Christ received the full outpouring of His Father's righteous wrath that was meant for us against the sins of the people. And with His own blood, He satisfied God's just anger or wrath against sin and diverted God's wrath from us Onto himself. That's, in fact, the aroma of this table here this morning. That's the aroma, the scent that should be in this room. Is Christ taking upon himself the wrath that we deserve? There's no greater 
display of divine love than the horrific display of God's wrath poured out for sin on the cross on His Son. He unleashed His holy fury upon our sin-bearer and substitute Jesus Christ, who became for us a propitiation by His blood. Christ is our propitiation. Uh, Other usages, uh, let me just read a few other verses that use this word propitiation. Uh, In its noun state, 1 John 2.2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins. In 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's also verb forms of this word, to propitiate. Interesting, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, as the sinner stands and beats his chest, he says, have mercy on me. He, in fact, says, propitiate me. Cover me. Remove the sin from me. Atone for me. In Hebrews 2.17, Therefore Jesus Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 9.5 translates this same Greek word as mercy seat. And we know that the mercy seat was where the, the place where the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And he had to do that over and over and over. Christ did it once. Here in Romans 3.25, the blood of Christ is represented. When the Old Testament priests offered this blood sacrifice, they symbolically covered over sin. So in a sense, propitiation is a covering of sin to hide that which is offensive in order to remove God's wrath from the offended party. So Paul here identifies Jesus as the high priest who with his own blood removes our sinful offense by taking upon himself the holy wrath of God. Jesus is our propitiation and completed what the Old Testament priests had to do over and over, but yet they were foreshadowing what Christ would do. But we can't just think of propitiation as just a sweeping uh, away our sins. Uh, there are actually two terms here, expiation and propitiation. Expiation is removing something or taking it away. It's the cleansing of sin, the removal of sin's guilt, more likened to atonement. Propitiation is the appeasing of the offended, uh, describing an action that removes the consequences of, of one's opposition to God. We deserve wrath. God is just to condemn us because of our transgressions against him, but because of what Christ does, he removes that wrath and appeases God. It is acceptable to God as payment that we could never pay. And through Christ, we've now been brought near to God. So it's not just sweeping it under the rug. God doesn't just overlook sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He doesn't excuse it. Sin must be punished. Eternal separation, eternal punishment because of our lawlessness, our transgressions. But what God requires, He provides in the person 
and work of Christ, who becomes for us a wrath-absorbing or a wrath-bearing substitute and offers up an acceptable sacrifice that we might be redeemed. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. God is rich in mercy, and because of his great love, once dead in our sins, we are now made alive in Christ. Every ounce of wrath that we deserved was fully poured out on Christ. He absorbed it. He took it upon himself. He drank the cup of God's wrath, offering his blood on the cross as our propitiation, declaring that our debt is now paid in full. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that we rehearse every time we come to this table. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. With the case closed against us, God shows up with not just mercy, because that would just remove what we deserve, but with rich, abundant grace, receiving, in fact, the very opposite of what we deserve. And we have no other joy than to worship our propitiator, the Redeemer, Christ himself. This changes the way we live, not for us, not from our own strength, but Christ who lives in us, and it's for his glory as he works through us. So just like as we got to the end of those indictments, where the defense was speechless, had no words to say, silent, no rebuttal, absolutely devastated when we read those indictments. Here, as we understand verse 26 and, or 21 and, and further, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Just like the end of the indictments, here also we are speechless. We're silent. When we understand the depth of God's love, when we understand the depth of his mercy and grace, the richness of his mercy and grace, when we understand his substitute was not just kicking away sin, not just sweeping it under the carpet, but he took it upon himself. He absorbed the wrath of God for you and for me. Speechless. Today's meal of, re of remembrance is a rehearsal of the gospel. It's another opportunity for God to nourish us with the bread of life as we come face to face with our own sinfulness and then flee to Christ through faith in his shed blood, his righteous life. We appropriate by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the Father. He is our propitiation. God's holy wrath is no longer directed toward us. We appropriate by faith the precious words of Romans 4, 7 and 8. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. So at this table, as we come, we dwell with deep humility and joy upon the promise of God that God has removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. That he has blotted out our transgressions and remembers our sin no more. Know the gospel. Appropriate it. Yield to it in a way that our faith-rooted union with Christ overflows into a faith-rooted life lived through him, by him, and for him. The fruit that comes out of this deep understanding and knowledge and appreciation and love for the gospel, love for Christ who is our treasure, the fruit that flows out of that is pleasing to the Father. And it happens when we submerge ourselves in gospel truth. Who we are in Christ. How we ought to live because of who we are in Christ. Who He is and how He works in us and through us as we submit and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, our propitiation. So this morning as we are going to move now to the table, we are silent. We are in awe of who God is and what He's done for us. Let's pray before we enter down into this next part of our service. Father, we thank you for who you are, for this atoning, substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, the propitiation that appeased your wrath. But it wasn't just removed and not carried out. You placed it on Christ. He absorbed the punishment that we deserve. And this morning as we gather around this table, I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts, that we would humbly come to you and humbly worship you, remember you, and remember and anticipate you're coming again and declare the gospel here as your witnesses. Lord, do your work in us. May our lives overflow with these truths. You as our propitiation. May that change the way we live, the way we parent, the way we disciple, the way we work, the way we walk before others, the way we declare your great truths. Lord, you are our treasure And Lord, I pray that our affections, our thoughts, our hearts would be centered and focused on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. As we move to this next phase, I just want to